a little more than 20 years ago, a man called Callum Brown published a book called The Death of Christian Britain. Now, Brown is not a Christian. He's a sociologist. He's a sociologist with a particular interest in in religion and a very well-informed man on the area. He is too. One thing about his book that that stuck with me uh, over the years is his recognition or his point he was making that one of the reasons for the decline of uh, Christianity in terms of numbers in um, the years um, following 1960s has been the decline in Christian conversation. The decline in Christian conversation, both in more formal settings, but also, he would say, in the informal settings. There was a time when people were much more um, aware of um, what the content of the Christian message is. Uh, It was much more commonplace to be involved, and, and so it came up more in conversation, and faith was much more openly talked about. The point would be that from the 1960s, that decreased significantly, and that meant that the context wasn't there that was helpful to and for the church. One of the side effects that he doesn't mention, but uh, I will, is just that it's unfortunately because um, that has been the case and people have become then less confident about speaking about the gospel, that all too often that has just left the kind of Uh, more unreliable fringe of Christianity as the one who have been making the public pronouncements. And in this series, looking at the responses to the pandemic, I've mentioned some of that. Another response, of course, from some people is that we should appeal for legislation once more to institute this or that again, to establish the centrality of the Christian faith in the nation. Again, I don't support that at all. Christianity should not be promoted that way. It should be done not through legislation, but through the witness of Jesus' people. Jesus' way was to commend what he said by living it out, living it out sacrificially. That was his message, and that was the method um, commended by him, not some kind of state endorsement. So in these times... um, of change, these times when we've gone through a pandemic, there's an important opportunity in place for us in recovering Christian conversation. We do so because Jesus is Lord of everything. As the cliche much used by preachers goes, he is Lord of all or not Lord at all. It might be a cliche. No, it is a cliche, but it's absolutely true. Either Jesus is Lord, in which case he's Lord of everything and all of life, or he isn't Lord of anything. God is Lord, not just of heaven, but is sovereign over his created order on earth too. And so part of the role of God's people is to put into practice here and now the realities of the kingdom, even though we live with the kingdom not yet fully complete It's a reality that we recognize regularly, for example, in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. It's a bringing together, a pulling together of heaven's reality and the situations in which we find ourselves. 
And so I think the church needs to learn or relearn what Callum Brown was talking about when Christian conversation was around and so gave a context for the church's witness. We should be able to say something about the pandemic other than it's some kind of sign that the world is about to end or some kind of particular judgment from God because it isn't either of these. And so within this context of the now of God's salvation but the not yet fullness of the kingdom, we are called to serve. And as we were saying last week, we're called to lament. We, we should be expressing the mismatch between the realities of here on earth and all that God has in store for us. And we should also be learning to share the Christian faith in a way that focuses on Jesus and yet connects with those around us. Now, that's not easy. That's not a, a simple task. So we should be glad to get any help that we can for that. And here's some help in Acts chapter 17 in the passage that Dorothy read. Paul is in Athens, and Athens is a very religious city. While Paul, verse 16, was waiting for them, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Later on at verse 21, we're told that the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul said, verse 22, that he could see that they were religious. He saw the objects of worship, even one, an altar that was to an unknown God. There was a lot of religion around. People liked discussions to go over the big ideas. It's not unlike our society today, in that while there's not a lot of physical idols everywhere to be seen, so there's a whole variety of ideas that people hold on to. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. We have You have your truth and I have my truth. It's that kind of open-ended notion of things, except, except there is no such thing as consistent and complete tolerance. You know how often we get that today? We're a tolerant society. Now, you tell that to the likes of J.K. Rowling, who's a put something out there as an opinion and get slammed right, left, and center. You tell that to the likes of Tim Farron, who had to give up his place in politics because of a question about human sexuality that he wasn't prepared to answer. I even know chaplains who have been banned from school because their congregations voted to stick with a traditional position on, on human sexuality. How tolerant is that? You can be tolerant up to a point. It was the same, actually, in Athens. Um, Socrates was killed by the Athenian authorities um, because they thought he was teaching the young things that they shouldn't know. It was upsetting the established order. So whether it's Athens then, whether it's uh, the UK and now, this notion of tolerance definitely has its limits. And into this mix of views, this idea that, well, you have your truth, you have mine, but by the way, if you say something out of line, we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. Into that context, Paul turns up in Athens. And it seems that he aroused both the interest of others and also aroused suspicion. And he was invited to present his case to them. Aha, that lets us off the hook, doesn't it? 
You know, Paul was invited to go and speak. I have not had an invitation. I have not had a letter asking me to come and speak at the East Bride branch of Agnostics Anonymous. So, hey, I'm off the hook. I don't have to do this kind of thing. No, that's not right. For as well as instances like this, when Paul addressed a crowd or a group of leaders, he also went, we're told, from house to house. He spoke to individuals. Because it's the responsibility of all of Jesus' followers to share faith. Who else is going to tell the world about Jesus? Do you expect vegetarians to promote the interests of eating steak? They don't do that. Nor will the world necessarily then promote Jesus and, and say, listen to Jesus and what he said. It's, it's, it's Jesus' followers who are left to do that. That's the way it should be. So look at Paul's conversation here. Now, his aim is to get to the point that there is one God and that this one God will hold the whole world to account and that the guarantee and indeed the means of that judgment is the man Jesus whom God has raised from the dead. That's what he's working towards, towards the point in verses 30 and 31 where there is a summons to repent. But notice how Paul got there. He didn't get there by citing a few examples of recent disasters. And there had been some. There had been some famines in the area and and other things. Paul didn't go there and say, well, look, that's a sign of judgments going to come. Just like COVID-19 is not necessarily a sign of judgment being around the corner. Because Jesus was the sign. Repentance was called for through the events about Jesus. That's Paul's position here. Jesus told a parable that we have in um, Matthew chapter 21, a parable of the tenants in the vineyard. And God is the vineyard owner and the tenants are just pleasing themselves. They're not doing what the vineyard owner was looking for or asking for or expecting. And so the vineyard owner in the parable sends messengers to the tenants. And one by one, these messengers are killed. And then the vineyard owner says, well, if I send my son, maybe they'll respect my son. And so the vineyard owner in the parable sends his son, and the tenants kill the son as well. And the point of the parable is that the son is the ultimate sign. There there was no more messengers after the son. That was all that the vineyard owner could do, was reach out through his son. And in the same way, the gospel is saying that that's all that God can do. He can reach out to his, through Jesus, this Jesus that Paul was working towards describing and telling them about. After the, the, the son, there was no more warning prophets in the parable in Matthew 21. There was nothing more to highlight. And for Paul in Athens then, and for us in the UK now, there was nothing more to highlight by way of signs than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And so through this message that we have and the passage that Dorothy read, Paul's conversation is about God's kingdom, about the need to repent. But he doesn't base that on the famine that happened recently. He doesn't base that on one or two world events. He bases that on the facts of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the pandemic and all that we've been through and still are going through might well arouse people's curiosity. It might make people think about what really matters. It did for a time, at least. It might make people more aware of the fragility of life or that life as we live it is not something that's always there for us in the same predictable ways that we've supposed it should do that. And God's church should be responding to those conversations, opportunities, just like Paul was making the most of the opportunity in Athens, but not by trying to read some direct divine message into it. God has sent this because a week on Thursday such and such is going to happen. It, we, we, should read it, we should be explaining from the fragility of life, from the unexpectedness, that there is a God who is sovereign. There is a God who is in control. There is a God who is calling us to repent. There is a God who will judge the world. And we base that not on what's been on the news this week, last week, last month, or indeed next week or next month, but on Jesus of Nazareth and his life, death, and resurrection. That's the final sign. That is the ultimate sign. There is a sense in which God can say no more than that. And just as I said, vegetarians are not going to talk up the importance of eating meat or the worth of eating meat, so it is to us, the church, to explain, to talk up, as it were, the relevance of Jesus and the importance and how in a world where there's so much flux and fluctuation, he, there is one we can depend on. Because he is through his life and death and resurrection, God has given us good signs, good basis for anticipating that the promises he's made about what's to come will in fact come. And so we must work just as Paul did there with starting from the connections. He, he began verses 22 and 23 with what his hearers knew about. And then he went on to show how the issues that were behind all these statues were best answered, best fulfilled in the gospel about Jesus. He contrasted their ideas about an unknown God to the God who had revealed himself through Jesus. So he didn't depend on circumstances of life for his message. Circumstances come and go, and they don't have the ultimate final meaning that there is in Jesus. Pointed that out through this series, how people at different times have pointed to things that obviously tie in with the end of the world. You know, the, the barcodes were the sign of the, um, <clears throat> the, sign of the beast in, from Revelation and you know, now years later, we've forgotten about barcodes being the sign from the beast because we've all got used to them, and then it must then be the, the vaccine certificates and whatever. People do that kind of thing all the time, and it's just simply wrong. It's not that God will give us that kind of information or timetable. It is that God has given us more than enough to go on in Jesus of Nazareth. 
And so we should work out, just as Paul did here, the points of connection, of contrast between what is going on around us, but not leave the conversation with the pandemic or Putin or any such thing, but lead to the facts about Jesus. That is, the various events and circumstances open up issues for us. They're avenues to explore questions, but they don't within themselves provide the answer. The answer is Jesus. Now, that's an extraordinary claim to make. It's a claim that's unpopular in our so-called tolerant society. Why not Buddha? Why not this? Why not that? Why not the next guy? Why not someone else? Amongst that context, it's an extraordinary claim to say, no, it's Jesus and Jesus only. But we don't make that claim because we've figured anything out. We don't make that claim because um, here's, here's the equation that we've worked out. We make that claim because that's what Jesus said. And we're left with the conclusion that either he spoke the truth or he was a complete fraud. Because part of the truth that he spoke is when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. So the conversation then must start where people are, but it must be seeking, us to, t- seeking to take people to Jesus. But as well as his conversation, more briefly, his motivation. And again, we might be tempted to let ourselves off the hook. Not only have we not had an invite to speak at the EK Agnostics Anonymous, yet we're not as clever as Paul, are we? We're not experts in philosophy or gifted debaters like him. So we can't do this, right? Wrong. Because if we don't speak out and up for Jesus as Paul did, it's because ultimately, not because we're not as well educated, it's because we do not feel what Paul feels. And that's because we do not see things the way that Paul sees them. When Paul walked around Athens, he did not just notice the idols in the way that few folks noticed there's a mirror there. It was more than that. Paul looked carefully, verse 23. He looked and looked, and then he realized how these idols were an offense against God, how his Lord was being usurped and being made small by, and being scorned by these false gods. He saw men and women who were made in the image of God, giving to these idols the worship that was due to the Lord alone. And it bothered him. He was sick to his stomach with it. And so he wanted the folks to see that they were backing the wrong horse. They were putting their eggs in the wrong basket. He wanted them to see that, not just for their sake, but also for the sake of God who deserves all the honor and praise. Now, the world around us today might not have the same physical statues like there were in Athens in Paul's day, but they're still idolatry. For any person or anything that occupies the place in our lives that God should have is an idol, wanting more and more stuff as idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatry. So can fame, power, Sex, food, alcohol, family, church activities, religion, and more. Where they become the be-all and end-all, God is misused, God is misplaced, and there's an idol put where he should be. 
And we do not need degrees in theology or to have been to training courses galore to feel what Paul felt as he was in Athens. And here, ultimately, is the lack. Not that we don't have the words, not that we don't have the expertise, because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, in another context, he didn't come with great eloquence and great words. He simply wanted to make known Jesus and him crucified. The issue is whether we see things the way Paul sees them, whether we feel things the way Paul feels them. Because if we do, then we will want to make Jesus known. Then we will be searching and seeking for ways to make connections, to draw contrasts, always with the aim of magnifying Jesus, because he is worth it. We should take the opportunities to be involved in conversations about what's going on, what it seems like. But we do so realizing that ultimately, the responses to these are not within ourselves, not within the news, certainly not if we haven't learned this lesson yet with politicians, but with Christ. The, de the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, it all hangs on that. The whole of human history hangs on that. That's an extraordinary claim. But it's the one that Jesus made. And it's the one that Jesus didn't in any way compromise on. He didn't say, well, it's all about me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But hey, if it's something else to you other guys, that's fine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me.